Still wasting food? Today's show is all about teaching you how not to do that anymore. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 307 and I have a wonderful guest joining me today, Hannah Churton. We've chatted on an Instagram live before where we're unpacking worm farming quite a bit, uh, quite soon after I got mine fired up again once we were finally settled. And uh, she's just got such an infectious way of teaching you about how to worm farm, how to compost, how to waste less food. Uh, and I really feel like the way she explains things and the kind of life she leads also making space for this while she's doing her PhD means that all of us can do it. And we talk about the time constraints of composting and, and worm farm solutions and uh, I actually challenge the very idea that we might not have time because I think it's about what we think we do and don't have time for. So we talk about that a little bit. She shares the ins and outs of different solutions based on different styles of living. So maybe you don't have a balcony. Maybe you do. Maybe you have a small patch out the back. Maybe you have a courtyard. Maybe you have a property and uh, you're wanting to get it going. Whatever type of house or apartment you live in, today we discuss solutions that are going to work for you. And we talk about worm farming and composting because both of them are a little bit different. One might appeal to you more than the other. I like worm farming because I feel like I'm interacting with little creatures and getting to know them and I adore that part of it. Uh, but you might prefer uh, straight podca uh, podcasting. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did anyone else have bad hay fever this week? Here in Sydney, it's been a nightmare with the trees just blowing all sorts of things. Anyway, what I was going to say was you might prefer straight composting. Uh, either way, we don't just talk about the different types, but we actually also troubleshoot, talk about different barriers to entry, and how to overcome some of those start-up challenges that we experience when we're trying to start anything up, right? So I'm going to hook into that conversation in just a little minute. I want to remind you, you will benefit from this if you listen today because it is the last day of the month, but Block Blue Light have been giving us an amazing 15% off all the month of October with the code LOWTOXLIFE15. And you've heard me rabbit on about their amazing full spectrum uh, light globes that they have now where you can flick the switch from day to dim evening to uh, full night uh, blue blocking night uh, globes. Gosh, you can so tell I've still got hay fever, can't you? <laughs> I'm just being honest. Um, 
And also their Sweet Dreams light bulb, which is my absolute fave. We've had that in our living room and bedroom spaces along with the reading light for years now, ever since it came out a few years ago. And I have absolutely loved them, which is why I'm so grateful that Daniel and the team come on board to support the show a couple of times a year because then we can support you in making these changes. Maybe you've got little ones and you need to do night lights, uh, exposure to pure bright blue light in the middle of the night for a little one can make it super hard for them to go back to sleep. So the special night lights that they have are fabulous as well. Uh, The reading lights you can take while you're traveling, which is great. So you don't have to finicky, finick around with bulbs in different hotel rooms or Airbnbs. You can just take your little reading light with you that has a full blue light blocking uh, mechanism. And gosh, I could go on the computer glasses, the red light panels, the full night blocking glasses, which are fabulous if you travel a lot uh, and you have to try and sleep on planes and trains or in cars. Uh, I just love the range. So make the most of that Lotox Life 15 code to get 15% off if you're listening to this today. Otherwise, just check out the range anyway. If you join their mailing list, they often send emails out with a bunch of offers over the year as well. I want to thank Oz Climate, of course, as our major sponsor this year. You have 10% off all year round. Their Winix air purifiers and their incredible dehumidifiers. Do not wait until February when it's raining every day on the East Coast here in Australia uh, to get yourself organized with dehumidifiers. Get them now while they're in stock. It was heartbreaking to see mold growing all over people's clothes, not because they were necessarily experiencing water damage and leaks just because it was so humid because it was raining all the time. So you have a 50-50 chance of it being a completely preventable situation uh, statistically in terms of whether you've got water damage or whether you've just got indoor air humidity excess. Uh, Grab yourself a hygrometer. That way all the time you can see if your indoor air humidity is regularly going above 60% and that's what we want to avoid. If it is, make sure you close the windows every couple of days, crank a couple of dehumidifiers and get that humidity down, get everything nice and dry. Because after just one or two days, if you've got a food source like dust or if you've got cellulose or if you've got um, delicious fabric uh, or leather shoes or jackets for mold to eat, it will start eating. So get your dehumidifiers, have a preventative strategy this year as we head into the more humid months of the year here in Australia uh, and you will notice how much of a game changer it is. And of course, Peak Chocolate, 20% off your first order with the code LOWTOX20. I had some Peak Chocolate Focus chocolate just today. Uh, I absolutely love it. It's got a green tea extract in there, B vitamins, uh, L-tyrosine, which is fabulous for focus. And they have a wonderful energy version and a rest version with L-tryptophan to uh, wind down in the evenings as well after dinner. So if you haven't checked out the Peak Chocolate range, it's sugar-free, which is fantastic for our insulin-resistant diabetic friends or for people simply wanting to eliminate the sugar in their diet. So I would definitely give it a go and Lotox 20 gives you 20% off. That's all I have to say. Thank you so much to our sponsors for helping me put the show on every week. And now let's get motivated to waste less food with Hannah Churton. Hello, Hannah. How are you doing? Oh, really well. Thanks, Alex. Really well. 
I'm very excited about this show. We've had an Insta live chat before where we really focused on a few aspects of worm farming. And it was one of those chats that my DMs go a little bit crazy and people have more questions once they've finished it than they started because they're like, oh, this sounds really great. But hold on, I now need to know about X, Y, Z. Uh, and so today we're going to go super deep, really comprehensive, and we're going to unpack why this isn't just a cool little thing that we should tinker with the idea of, but it's literally one of the most essential things we can do uh, to close the loop, uh, to uh, dramatically reduce food waste. And I guess my first question is, what was your first little light that went off about how impactful it would be to start doing something like worm farming? Yeah, I'm not actually sure whether I had that real light bulb bulb moment. Um, for me, it was this kind of thing that bubbled away in my life, actually from quite an early age, I think, because my parents were avid worm farmers, mm. something that was just uh, habitual in my life. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily doing, but I could observe it. And I think um, that observation was a real key for me taking it up in life and viewing it as something that was an important aspect of, of living. It was something that um, needed to be incorporated into day-to-day and it seemed like a normal thing to be incorporated into day-to-day. But I think as I grew into adulthood and did start to incorporate incorporate it into my day-to-day, I did realise over time that this was something that wasn't just part of my daily habit. It was something that actually contributed to um, food waste reduction and, more importantly, to the huge global issue of climate change. Mm. And more so than pretty much any other thing we can do on a personal level. That's the thing, other than changing our air cons if we've got really old ones or air fridges. Uh, if you look at the Project Drawdown um, ranking system, uh, food waste is in the top five. Um, and the thing that, I, I mean, I just keep seeing this doomsday picture of cows in a field as the the poster, poster animals for the entire climate change mess. And I'm like, um, can we just focus on starting compost bins and worm farms? Because it's way, way, way higher up the list. Uh, yeah. yeah. Precisely. And the other thing, most importantly, is that it's something that we as individuals in our own homes can do something about. Yeah. We have control of it. And so it makes so much sense on that level. You know, we don't have control about our agricultural systems and changing the way that we eat food as a society on a whole, but we do have control about how we eat food within our households and how we responsibly dispose of that food. And I think for me, that is really the one big, um, the one big difference with with food waste in the home is that we we can control it. Mm, absolutely, and I think it's just it's not as sexy, and there's not as many big corporations that can profit from it. And I genuinely believe that is why it is not in the main a huge media focus uh, because of the system we're in and in terms of what does get focused on, it usually means something gets profited on. So if we ditch cows, then we've got to start increasing the amount of processed foods that we create as mega corporations to have enough protein 
in the human diet. And for me, that's just so sinister when we could all just be connecting to nature in our homes, you know, getting those scraps in, having a little daily chat or weekly chat with our worms uh, and really genuinely making a difference. Uh, And it's, it's just, as you say, it's such an empowering personal carrot being dangled in front of us that we haven't even seen yet for the most part Uh, because, I mean, statistically, do you know how many people actually do worm farm and compost? Is there a figure? Um, No, there's definitely not a figure for that. Um, Mm. There is a figure for how much food we throw away. Yeah. And I think that is very alarming. So we do throw away in Australia one in five bags of the groceries that that we buy it it literally goes straight into the bin um and uh you know that for us kind of indicates that um it's not really registering food waste uh, um in the in the economic sense it's not us in the hip pocket somehow that we are effectively throwing that one in five bags in the bin um and yeah I think if we could get people to register that there is that economic aspect, um, people would probably would be a little bit more responsible because they do realise that that actually adds up to um, $2,500 a year worth of food. And, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, And everyone would agree that that's a significant amount of money, particularly at this time where um, food food prices are much higher, people are struggling a lot more, food security, there's a lot more pressure on um, on, on, on families and food security. Mm. Um, and so perhaps that is enough to tip people over the line and to register, okay, we need to do better with our food. Um, but people still aren't even registering on, on that economic front, seemingly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think we're just so caught up in this uh, way of, thinking about food as a desire-driven thing. And I'm not saying people who are under economic hardship who are literally thinking, well, how do I get my next meal? But more the people in the middle who think, what do I fancy every single day? And it's like, oh, wow, we really actually need to address the what do I fancy question that we've culturally been uh, programmed to be allowed to ask ourselves every single day where really we should be saying, well, what we've got is leftover lentil soup in the fridge and that's what we're having. Done. End of story. Not what do I, fa- oh, yeah, Vietnamese, let's do that. You know, that's that's the normal but it's not the optimal. Absolutely, that's right. And actually this reminds me of, of your book, mm. <laughs> Low-Tox Food, because what that book does is, teach us that we need to respect our food and our decisions around food right from that point of making a decision about what we buy right through that um it's a holistic process of what we buy how we plan to cook it Mm. how how we eat it how we consume it how we dispose of it um and we need to respect our food at, at every point where as you say we don't do that. We make decisions on a whim. Um, and it's because we can. Yeah, that's it. In, in many respects. And we- we're encouraged to with targeting online, uh, with how gosh darn easy it is to just get whatever you want in 20 minutes to half an hour. Uh, and 
And I think there's a lot of psychological, uh, there are a lot of psychological layers to unpack as to how we actually then gravitate more towards uh, a, a, a a connected approach to food from the start to the finish, uh, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's a huge challenge. I think about this a lot. Mm. How do we get people to to value their food? Um, yeah. It's- yeah. And I think, do you think, it's just popped into my head, do you think valuing is different to glorification? I feel like there's a lot of glorification chef shows oh my god this is amazing and like you know so and so touring Italy and taking you through their favorite foods there's a lot of aspirational glorification of food but value of food is not talked about as as much and therefore we don't really understand just how important and lucky we are Completely. And if you kind of compare it to the way that we value our our water in Australia um, mm. and, you know, we have had um, public awareness campaigns about, about water and the value of water and how precious water is, we should be um, talking about our food in that way too. Yeah. Um, that's how we need to be valuing our food um, and we're not, we are glorifying it and we, um, that diminishes the value of it in a, in a big way, I think. Massive, yeah. Um, such a good precursor to then talking about the the waste component and and starting to reduce that. So, I mean, you've been working to get people in the know about worm farming and composting for a while now. What do you see are the biggest barriers that just come up again and again and again for people in terms of them not starting or giving up? Mm. It's fear. I think first and foremost, people are really fearful about starting and that's because they don't want to make a mistake and they don't want to fail. Um, And, you know, I get that. I I understand. Um, And, you know, it's like anything else, you know, it's like... um, it's like learning an interest, uh, an instrument or, or learning how to meditate. Um, you need to practice. You don't, you can't do it perfectly immediately right from the start. It is a practice and you have to then practice that to, to improve. Um, but, you know, that said, I'm not equating the difficulty of it to learning an instrument or to, um, <laughs> Or to learning how to meditate, in fact. But I think what you are saying is the embedding of the practice is the thing that comes with time rather than, oh, I'm going to be great at this and this is going to be easy and I'm not going to have to worry about it for too long. And I can speak as a two-month-long parent to a rehomed 16-month-old toddler. (laughs) See, I was going to call him a toddler. There you go. And it really feels like he is, but he's a retriever. Um, where you think, I remember my husband saying, this is hilarious, it's just going to be a walk in the morning, a walk in the evening, a little bit of attention during the day, and that's really it. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, I was hoodwinked. <laughs> so Glad much more than days. that. <laughs> but, you know, the first three days, super intense, nearly had a breakdown. First, then three weeks start to see glimmers of a routine developing, knowing when he's going to sleep, all those sorts of things. So I feel like, and now we're two months in and things are getting a little bit easier again, and I feel like 
anything new really does follow quite a similar arc. You could plug and play with anything. So first few weeks of composting, I remember going, oh, my God, it stinks and there's mould everywhere in there. What have I done wrong? And and thinking, God, this is just all too hard. You know, I'm going to have to give up. I don't have time for this. And then me with all my mould fiasco history, like it's a bit of a trigger for me. And um, But I persevered. And then you start to notice things come up things get easier, you recognise and you troubleshoot better. Anything new is the same, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the point is that you just have to start. Mm. You have to get your hands dirty, quite literally. In this yeah. Sense, because that's how you get to understand the life of your worm farm or the life of your compost. And, um, you know, you'll make mistakes, but then you you know, like anything, you don't make that mistake again. You have to make the mistake to learn. You have to have that failing to mm. then, you know, overcome it. Um, and really the only way to learn is to get your hands dirty. Um, but but that said, um, I, I am a huge advocate for um, just getting started because it isn't as hard as people are making out. They've set this yeah. barrier of fear and failure um, that actually isn't that high. It's not as difficult as um, they're making it out to be in their own heads. Um, and what I then say is, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And yeah. the worst thing that can happen is that you've got this stinking mess in your worm farm or your compost and, you know, that sucks. That's something that probably has to go to landfill or, you know, you've got to dig it out or whatever you have to do to get your hands even dirtier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not ideal, but um, that's the worst thing that can happen. Right. And yeah. you know, that's actually a huge learning. So if you can then pick up and do it again, then that's fantastic. Yeah. That's it. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, for me, it was a classic case of just having too much of the wrong things in there in too large an amount and then it all just rotted. And so we're going to unpack some of those troubleshoot questions as we go. Uh, but I think you are so spot on with um, thinking about the worst case scenario. Uh, Seth Godin talks about this, you know, the marketing guru. Um, he always asks you to think about what the worst thing that could happen in anything you're contemplating doing is and making friends with that worst thing that could happen so that you then go, oh, well, actually, that's not so bad. And so let's Absolutely. just try this. Yeah. Absolutely. And in this case, the worst thing that can happen is that it goes to landfill. Mm. And, you know, if you weren't composting, it's going to landfill anyway. So, you yeah. know, um, you just you cut your losses and you and you get back on the horse. Yeah, that's it. So let's talk about... Um, the majority of people living in cities, because I think this is really where we can make a huge difference. A lot of people who are on country properties have big compost heaps outdoors. It's kind of just part and parcel of country living. But the people who are in the cities, let's talk about the different styles of living, uh, whether it's a balcony or no balcony even. I remember, I think you said that you first started when you didn't even have an outdoor space. Is that right? Uh, I think it could have been right. I mean, I've certainly... <laughs> I've certainly had a number of indoor um, worm farms, that's for sure. And you're right, actually, one of the first worm farms I had was kept in um, a, a spare bedroom wardrobe. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yes, I think you probably, you probably are right there. Yeah. So 
we can worm farm without an outdoor space. Yes, absolutely you can. And I think urban composting and reducing our food waste in urban spaces is one of society's biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt, but there are definitely ways that we can completely mitigate that within our own home. So I think that's a huge positive. Yeah, great. And does that really come down to then selecting like a little compact unit and something that's going to fit in with what you've got as space? Um, and, And there are so many different options, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. So I think that if um, if you can get your own little urban worm farm, um, fantastic. That's a really, really great way that um, you can um, responsibly dispose of you, your own food waste in your own home. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we were saying, you can keep a worm farm inside. You can keep it under the kitchen bench. You can keep it in the laundry. Um, you can keep it in any kind of uh, cool, dark kind of place, a bathroom. Um, I kept one in a wardrobe, as I said. <laughs> and... <laughs> I love that. It's just it's setting the, the there is no excuse precedent. That's what that exactly. says. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I completely accept that that's not for everyone. My standards are pretty low. My threshold for keeping worm farms are low. I'll keep them anywhere. I'm more than comfortable, but I get that that's not for everyone. Um, and also the other thing is that um, an urban worm farm is only going to take a certain amount of food scraps. So if you're a family larger than this, um, you know, than a three-person family, even getting up to a four-person family, one of those urban worm farm units that you buy at Bunnings just isn't going to cut it in terms of the amount of food waste that you've got. And then you get to your problem where you've overfed the thing, it's growing mould, it's it's growing a life of its own literally in there. Mm. And you know you you can't keep up and it, it's it's a mess. Um, so that's where um it becomes a bit of a challenge in urban spaces where there are a larger number of people and you can't keep multiple worm farms going in within your household. Yeah. So you do. Um, and But there are other great options as well, thankfully. So Bakashi is another great urban option. Oh, um, yes. Uh, so yeah. they always look so small. Mm. Can you talk me through um, how that works? Because I always think, God, I'd fill that up in a day. So I've never really gone there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Bikashi, what Bakashi is is actually a fermenting process. It's not yeah. actually a composting process. So what you do is you throw your food scraps in there and the Bakashi system pickles it, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it's so small because it will ferment quite quickly. Then you can throw more stuff in and over the course of about a week it will fill up or two weeks it will fill up. Um, and then what you need to do with it is dispose of it again. Um, so because it's not composted, you need to then compost it. You need to take it to um, a community compost um, facility or have someone else compost it for you. The good thing about Bakashi then in the uh, urban setting is that you can kind of tuck it away into this unit. It pickles it so you don't have the stink there and you kind of can kick that can down the road for a couple of weeks until your bakashi is full and then dispose of it rather than having to have, um, you know, your little compost caddy sitting on your kitchen bench and starting to smell after two days and then having to take it out to your community garden mm. or 
someone else to compost. So for me, that's the benefit of Bakashi. It's not composting it, but it is allowing you to, it's giving you a short-term solution so that you can um, um, you can dispose of it over a different period of time. Um, yeah. And, for, and that's perfect for city people because you've got community gardens in most suburbs these days. Uh, exactly. And so it's about plugging in. Membership costs a pittance with your local community garden. Sort of, I've seen prices anything between twenty five dollars a year and a hundred bucks a year, depending on how um, intricate the garden is and how much work um, is involved. And then it just becomes part of your morning walk with the dog or whatever. You know, you just drop it off and um, and then you're back. Do you empty it into? Can we empty it into, I'm just thinking beginner's mind, compost, compostable bags and drop them off? Um, or is it essential that it not be bagged in anything? Because I've found the compostable bags don't really break down in my worm farm, certainly not fast enough for yeah. the food to not rot inside. Yeah, I think you can take it in a compostable bag, but you'd have to empty it out of the compostable yeah. bag and then put the compostable bag in there as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the thing with compostable bags is that they need to be home compostable in order to break down in those community facilities. So you have to be really mindful that um, your compostable bag has the home compostable symbol on it and is not compostable only in an industrial facility. And people get completely confused by that all of the time because our um, labelling system isn't clear enough and um, mm. rightly people just people just don't understand. Yeah, so, got it. But you, you're, ab um, you're absolutely right about if you fill a bag with, if you fill a compostable bag with food scraps um, and throw it into your worm farm, yeah, the food does start to decompose before the worms get to it unless you tip the, the food out. Yeah. And then so when we go to a balcony option, uh, what can we start to work with that gives us a little bit more capacity in those in those spaces? Um, well, I think what you can do is you can have a number of kind of systems going as well. So you could have your bakashi, which kind of pickles your food and starts that breakdown process, uh, and that allows you kind of more, more capacity with your new little urban worm farm for example. So that's one option you can go for. It it does become slightly more complicated because um, the Bakashi is slightly acidic. So um, you need to add more carbon to your worm farm then just to balance that acidity. Got it. Um, and so let's talk about how we do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So um, balancing the acidity in a worm farm basically just means that you, you need to add up the carbon levels. So that means in an urban setting, that for me um, is just any paper that I have around the house. So all of my children's beautiful artwork tends to go into the worm farm. <laughs> um, there are so many houses. <laughs> I love it. Well, there's nothing wrong with honesty, Hannah. There you go. Um, you know, I'll give it a week or so on the fridge, mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, it's straight into the worm farm because that's, that's all really beautiful carbon that can, can go to the worms and balances out that pH from the acid in our food scraps. Mm. Um, 
more so if you've got the if you if you think you're cashing but there are heaps of things around the house that you can put in that are carbon sources so all of my toilet rolls go into the worm farms um all of my um uh anything that's paper and cardboard that i get through the mail goes into my worm farm i don't recycle it um paper towel as long as i haven't used any chemicals on paper towel um or as long as it's kind of natural stuff, then it can go straight into the worm farm as well. There's there are, there are so many carbon additives that you can even get within an urban environment that can go into you to your worm farms. Outside of that, if you've got a leaf source, um, that is that is gold. That is wow. excellent roughage for your. So worm you can farm. do some gutter hunting with gloves. Exactly. And anything dried out on the street is excellent fodder for your worm farm. It is it is probably the best kind of carbon source because it's got real kind of structural integrity. Um, and so it really helps to aerate your farm when you put it in as well. Uh, whereas paper tends to get soggy and then, you know, that you don't have those beautiful air pockets or anything that come through like with leaves. But people in yeah, urban got environments don't have the same access to leaf litter as as you might do uh in the suburbs or or outside of the city so yeah um, and is is that why the toilet roll holder with its little gap is such a good because I find that like I'd bury it and just put things around it and then it creates those little air pockets because exactly. it stays in place. Exactly. Yeah. It is a beautiful addition to your worm farm because it's got a be- uh, a built-in air vent. Mm. Okay, a- cool. And then another thing I thought of, you know when you get junk mail, but it's those laminated full-colour ink kind of flyers, would they be bad? I'm just thinking, gosh, those do actually come in regularly, but that couldn't be it's an excellent Good. question. Um, gloss anything that's glossy. I still maintain to keep out. Put it into your recycling instead. But I've had conversations about this with you know fellow composters and people who are doing composting on a large scale, and they've kind of started to experiment with this stuff because you know modern inks have really become a lot better for the environment. And so the question is around the inks and what's in there that could pollute or contaminate our compost. And um, no one I've spoken to can kind of give me a definitive answer on whether it's still a no-go or not. Um, For the moment, I'm erring on the side of caution because I just don't want to contaminate my compost. But, um, yeah, it's something that's an ongoing investigation for me. Yeah, okay, cool. It would allow me to get so much more into my worm farms because a lot of that fodder annoyingly does come through the mail and you mm. I know I can't believe that. it's still happening to I be know. honest I know should it's be it should be um finable as an offense because it's just so polluting um all those fridge magnets that no one asked for um but you know here we are so let's stay solution focused uh we now move to a small yard an inner city option still but you've got a yard Uh, What can we do there? Because there are some pretty interesting new underground options, uh, which a lot of people seem to like the idea of because then that's not going to maybe attract as many uh, rats, cockroaches. That's a big concern in the city as well. Mm. 
it is. Once you kind of get to having a backyard space, you've got loads of options, one of which is the in-ground um, worm farm or even just in-ground kind of um, uh composting without worms um, and they're all good options and they all have pros and cons so in-ground farms are great and you can make one yourself or you can now buy them quite readily commercially um, and they're really fantastic because um, you know they're they're under the surface they um, they're basically already interacting with the 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 life within the soil around it which is, you know, a really fantastic thing. Um, so it's um, it's living kind of organically within within that network already. Um, the challenge within ground systems is that it's slightly more difficult to harvest that because um, you've kind of got to dig it out. So physically, it's slightly more problematic um, than say a one of the the big compost black compost bins that are on ground which, you know, you can effectively um, set and forget uh, and then just lift lift the tub off so you don't have to do as much manual labour there, I guess. Uh, suburbs are also conducive to then starting things like compost bays and um, it really just depends on what, what you want to do and what your space is like and um, how much time you've got. So hot composting or, or even cold composting in bays is slightly more time intensive because you've got to turn turn the compost um, in order to aerate it. Um, is that those big bins that kind of get turned around? That's a tumbler. Oh, okay, got it. Um, yeah, so, and you know, that's, a, that's yet another option. Um, Compost bays are just the ones that you kind of build on the ground out of. Oh, got it. And you've got to kind like of that. just yeah. dig it through and around exactly. for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got it. it. That's it. Mm. Um, you know, the so the the cons there would be that it's, you know, it's it's open. So, you know, things like attractive attracting unwanted critters or vermin um, might be a little bit higher in the suburbs. And if that's not something that you want, then perhaps you opt for a worm farm, which is completely contained. And then so you don't have an issue of of, of rats getting in or something like that. Yeah, I run a uh, compost hub in my backyard and I use uh, large um, large scale worm farms. And it's just, they're just bathtubs that I've foraged from the renovation sites around my suburb uh, and set up worm farms in those bathtubs. And bathtubs are the most perfect design for a worm farm because they've got a slight slant on them. Oh, and brilliant. A, a plug hole at the end for drainage. So they're just a, a beautiful, they're beautifully designed for worm farms. And that's what I use. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot. Oh, you can go for a tumbler, which is what you you mentioned before, which is a commercial unit that is raised off the ground. Mm. Um, yeah, so many different options. And when you said uh, the bathtub had the the plug hole, uh, so you're obviously draining off the worm tea. Uh, where's that going? Because that would obviously not be great if it just went straight into the soil below. It'd kind of burn it, wouldn't it? At that concentration. Yeah, I catch it. So I yeah. just have a little tub underneath which, which catches all that tea. And then I just really heavily dilute that and put it onto my, mostly I actually put it onto my non-edibles. thing with the tea is that um, it's 
its components are really uncertain because it hasn't been, that tea hasn't been processed through the worm. And so its precise contents uh, are nowhere near as certain as the poo that comes out of the worm. We know exactly what's in that poo. We can test it um, and um, we know what it's composed of. With the tea, it's less certain. Um, because so I guess it would be dependent on different metabolites and conditions around exactly. and have a lot more variables. So exactly. does that mean, is that why you're not using it on your edibles? Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But still a great option like to, like, you know, you've got a hub, for example, so I'd imagine you've got lots of people coming um, to drop off their scraps. How, how many families do you cater for? Oh, it's hard to know. It's really hard to know now. The uptake has been um, really uh, positive. That's <laughs> um, good. I know. And I, I now don't really know who's dropping off. I, ha- I have about 10 permanent members on my street, but um, it's 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 open to the public. So anyone can come and leave the compost. And as word gets around, more and more people are contributing to the system. So, um, which means I have slightly less control over what goes in, but so fantastic that, um, you know, more people can reduce their, their food waste. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and so you could then give out like bottles of, of worm tea diluted, ready to go, um, to people who then come and collect like you could set up all sorts of fantastic things really yes exactly mm. it's ex- mm. exactly right and I think for me the one great takeaway from starting up this compost hub is has very little to do with the compost and much much more to do with um, the wonder uh, of community and the, the joy of community and what can be built from community because all of a sudden all of these options are opening up and it's not just about dropping your food scraps off and um and reducing your food waste there are all of these other things that have come about as a result of building this little network it's amazing that's the thing isn't it and i find um just as with getting a dog you get plugged into a sense of community that you never knew existed uh, the same goes with when you start to do things like worm farming and composting, especially when there's a community element. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I really went into this um, with very, very little concept of, of that, of the community and and what would what would happen. You know, I, I effectively just bunged a sign in my carport and said, you know, taking food scraps. Um <laughs> and what has resulted super technical (laughs) (laughs) you know and now we have you know I bag up the um the worm cast and I give it back to contributors um we have built this glorious verge garden which the community has access to it is thriving it is being built entirely out of the compost that the community has built and so they are just invested in this process and um you know are interested in a way and want to participate in a way that I just I just really had no concept of before I started so good and do you find that people feel clever (laughs) yes yes they're not even doing anything it's the worms doing all the work but do you find that there's like a certain pride and cleverness to oh we know how important this is 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know that because of the the conversations it sparks around other things that we could now be doing as a community. And, you know, always I'm having conversations with with people on the street about how we could do things better and what else we could add to this hub. You know, can we add a food swap um, because other there are other growers in the street or there are people co- coming to collect um, food boxes because um, my household also happens to be a, um, a collection point for um, a local um, food uh, cooperative. So people come to the place to collect their veggies. Can it also be, can we also incorporate then a food swap in for the greater community to start having a hub there to bring food and take take what they need um, and contribute what they can? Um, so all of these conversations are constantly kind of bubbling away in people's heads. And it's because, as you say, they they th- they now understand and they value that and um, they feel they have this sense of clever, yeah. Yeah, and interdependability, I think, as well. It's something you don't expect, but you start to see how interdependent we are. We're not just about our little nucleus families getting on with our our one story. Uh, And then that plugs into the studies that have been done on the more interconnected we are, the happier we are on the happiness scale, like genuine deep happiness, not buy a new handbag quick happiness. Um, And for me, that's an aspect that a lot of people do it initially because they feel that they should and they must and they understand the need for less food waste. But then the flow-on benefits are things that people didn't expect to benefit from and that's like the touchy-feely goosebump stuff that ends up happening because you are interconnected as a community. There's no doubt about that, including for me. For me, that was such a such a lesson. Um, in a in a former life, I I um, I travelled a lot, and I had a really kind of global, I guess, perspective on on life, just through virtue of the work that I was doing and the travel that I was doing. Uh, and I came back to start this compost hub and to really kind of invest in community unwittingly at the time. Um, but for me, that was such a huge lesson that um, on this small scale, we can make so much of a difference. And, you know, for many years, I've been trying to make a di- difference quite globally. And I've now really brought it right in. And my views around change and how we influence change have changed completely because I realised that it's change happens at the community level and at this really, really localised space. I feel like I've made so much more change within this short space of time that I've been running this compost hub than all the years that I was working in this kind of global capacity. It's really, it's been such a lesson for me, a really beautiful lesson. Yeah, and I think a lesson for activism everywhere. Activism, you have to wonder about the effectiveness of activism, especially, and not, and I'm not, I'm not saying that activism is bad. I'm just speaking to your point as an individual of realising, chasing the global, we've got to do, you know, it's got to be big and and then actually big starts small. It always starts small. And I think if you are out there, because I've been there as well, you know, calling from the rooftops that things need to change, but 
you haven't changed the most basic things yourself at home and within your community and become an interdependent community, then you constantly feel let down by the system instead of strengthened and empowered by your hyper-local system and what you're achieving there. And I think it speaks to the mental health aspect of of being a change maker in the world and wanting to see a, a happier, healthier planet and people. Uh, the deep happiness comes when you genuinely see it around you with your neighbour, with your worms, uh, and uh, and you start to feel like, oh, wow, you know, something's actually changing. And then that's powerful, right? That is exactly right. And, you know, it's so easy to feel really overwhelmed and overcome by the challenges that, you know, we face in terms of climate change. But just um, contributing to community and thinking about the difference that you can make from from your own household or within your own street or within your slightly broader community, so much joy and happiness and hope and you know that's what that's what we need to be approaching this giant global issue with so yeah 100 percent uh and so okay well I think we should talk about some troubleshoots in our last part of this conversation because as we said at the start invariably people start and then you can't you have to get to know the process it's not an overnight thing you you don't become fluent in composting uh from just setting it up it actually comes from the relationship you build over time and the things you notice that your compost or worm farm might need um what would you say are the most common things that can go wrong in the early stages of setting up either a compost or a worm farm You've already hit the nail on the head with this one and it's the overfeeding. And I think pretty much every person starts their worm farm and overfeeds. And it's a mistake that you have to make because you don't know how much those worms can consume. You don't. You don't. I just thought, oh, I thought you guys would be much hungrier than this. Whoopsies. And they are hungry. Mm. (laughs) But um, you just need to learn. And so what I... What I, my recommendation is baby steps, number one. So start out just feeding them a handful. And sure, that means not all of your waste is going to be um, consumed, um, disposed of responsibly from the outset. Some of it's still probably going to landfill and that's okay. You've made a start. We don't need to be everything straight away. So start off with a handful and wait until they've consumed 80% of that. And then give them another handful and maybe push the envelope a little bit, give them a little bit more. And over time you'll learn and you'll probably, and you'll get to the point where you push the envelope so much that you're right. "Uh Aha. Okay. Here we go. It's starting to rot before the worms are consuming it or um, it's starting to get on the nose. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll hold off, but you kind of need to push the envelope to that point before you understand that. I think we all have to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, before we go, oh, okay, here we go. This is, that's not quite right. There are some ways that you can kind of speed up the process. And um, one of those ways is to chop your food scraps up into tiny pieces to make Yeah, that was a game changer for me. Everything goes in the Thermomix. Then I make like a big, um, I've got a huge vase. So I just make a big layer cake of carbon, which is just torn up paper and loo rolls and then some scraps and then build it up and then just tip it all into like this big 
I just make a parting hole and then just kind of mix it up a little bit. And then that has seemed to be the golden ticket. We all get along, everything works, and I can do two full Thermomix loads a week now. There you go. Yeah. Mm. And I love your vase. I love that visual concept that, you know, you kind of showing that, you know, you've, you've, you've got your carbon and your nitrogen going, but, um, you know, it's all mixed up and in it goes. Uh, and that really helps because the tiny, the worms will just get through the tiny bits and pieces way, way quicker. You'll find, I reckon you can probably more than double what you add to the farm by chopping things up or blending things. Mm. Yeah. Which uh, so it's basically just helping them break it down faster. Exactly. Yeah. You're yeah. doing half the work for them. Mm. And yeah. in a regular compost, would you do the same? Does that help it rot faster and, um, and develop? Yeah. It's the I don't same. even know what the technical term would be for that. Sorry. I just, as soon as I said develop, I'm like, is that the word though? Mature. <laughs> Mature. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's the same. It'd be the same kind of, um, same kind of principles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of what we're not putting in there, what do worms dislike? Mm, that's a great question. It's probably the most asked question that mm. I get. And my answer is probably slightly controversial because it's um, everything. They eat everything, but in moderation. So that just makes everyone's life very easy. You don't have to think about, okay, what do they eat? What do they don't eat? What can't I put in there? What oh, You know, it all gets confusing. And I feel like think that then adds to the fear and we can without that so my principle is everything but in moderation so like humans worms enjoy a varied diet uh, and so keep that in mind they like to eat lots of different things but in smaller portions Uh, what you do need to be careful with is with things like uh, meat and dairy which is often on the no list Uh, you just need to 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 go pretty um, light on with that stuff, mostly because it um, it rots a lot quicker than vegetable food scraps, and so you'll just start to get a smell a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're so expensive and labor intensive to produce. One would hope that we're really focusing on if you know if one does eat meat and dairy to really make sure that we're not wasting much of that at all. Um, that is somewhere I have found my dog extremely useful um, <laughs> uh, to help out with that. But I do have a fear around citrus because I do a big le- glass of lemon juice and a little bit of salt every morning. And I, I see the lemon peels piling up and I think, mm, I feel like it's too much for them. Am I overthinking it? And should I just chuck it in and see? I'm always an advocate of pushing the envelope okay, <laughs> and cool. testing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you will will know your worm farm well enough now yeah. that that's something that you can, you'll be able to do. And you'll notice quite quickly because you know your worms and you know your farm, whether or not um, it's too much for them. So mm. I'll give it a shot, give it a shot and see how they go. Chop it up. Yeah. Blend it, which, yeah, you're doing that anyway. Uh, and then, um, yeah, maybe separate it from your other scraps if you can, mm. just so you can conduct a bit of an experiment. Yeah, like almost do a tablespoon of blended lemon rind and just see. Because my worms, are th- this is these are the two things I know about them after a year and a half of doing this. 
um, they come up the sides and over to the lid really quickly after putting in scraps if they're not happy with those yeah. scraps mm-hmm. or if I haven't put in scraps for a few days when they're hungry and asking for food again. Yes. Those yep. are the times they just see them going up the sides and they're like, yep. I don't like these corn husks. They're disgusting. Get them out of here. And I take them out and they all go back in the soil. It's unbelievable because yeah, I can't amazing. blend them. Um, and yes. so I'm like, oh, that's mm-hmm. what it was for you guys. Okay, fine. We don't do the corn husks. Well, I, I would note, though, that they also tend to do that when it's um, just about to rain or it is raining. They come towards the moisture. So uh-huh. keep that in mind too. I will. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely noticed those points of communication that they have with me. Yeah, <laughs> it's, really just, it's really quite amazing. I never thought I would be communicating with worms. Yeah, but you're um, absolutely right. When they don't like something, they they will let you know, and that's what they do. They come to the they come to the surface. Mm, yeah, they're like, I'm not going in there. <laughs> it's quite funny. <laughs> it's like someone's shit in the pool. <laughs> they're like, no, not going in there. Um, okay, and so. In terms of then a more traditional compost heap or a tumbler uh, or the underground compost, are there any do's and don'ts in terms of what goes in there or are you a chuck it all in and see for that as well? It's the same principles. And, yeah, again, I would emphasise that with the meat and dairy, particularly in open systems where um, vermin can access very easily, then you've just got to be really careful with meat and dairy um, because you'll just attract unwanted guests. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the one the one thing that I would say is an absolute no is um, pet poo. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you can be composting your puppy's poo. Yeah. Uh, but you just need to do it in a standalone unit. So get a worm farm and have it as your dog's worm farm where you put with, with soil in it. Yep. Just uh-huh. a regular worm farm, but just keep the poo and the carbon going in there like a regular worm farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it will process uh, beautiful castings just like it does with your food scraps. Mm-hmm. But um, don't put it on your edibles. No. On edibles. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we're not putting worms in the pet poo one, right? Yep. You're putting. Oh, we them. are. Yep. Okay. Yep. Not not for cats, unfortunately. Not mm-hmm. for cats. But so for just dogs, for dogs. Yeah, it's fine. Right. So, and I'd imagine you could do that with a much smaller worm farm, like a really little unit, if they only poop once a day and and it kind of goes through relatively yeah, quickly. Yeah. Sure. How long does it take them to break it up? Well, it's the same. Pretty much exactly the same. Right. Yeah. Even quicker, actually, because it's already kind of poo is a processed thing, right? Mm. So, you know, that it's already kind of broken down. Um, you know, it's 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 structurally it's quite soft and you know, yeah, add a bit of carbon to that and you're good to go. It'll it'll break down relatively quickly and it will produce it really will produce something of of equal quality to what you put through a regular worm farm with your food scraps. Absolutely. Fantastic. But to err on the side of caution because dogs are um, meat eaters and um, there is um, certain bacteria within dog poo, then you wouldn't put it on your edibles just to err on the side of caution. Yeah, I could go with that. Uh, yeah. But, you know, my son's a succulent garden keeper, so... We can uh, we can do the succulents. We can do uh, all of the 
what else have we got? Some lavender. We could chuck it in the lavender. Totally. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I think that's great. I hadn't even thought about composting my doggy poo on my balcony, but I think we've got another unit coming. That's a great idea. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Keep them separate and, you know, it'll do the job just as well. And I have to say the posts that I do on composting pet poo and trying to explain that are by far the most controversial posts that I do. But I do think that it's a really, really important discussion to have despite that controversy because if we're going to be pet owners, we also need to be responsible pet owners. And um, one fantastic way to, to be responsible is to is to produce a beautiful compost from our dog poo. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, let's just say your pet prefers to poop in the park. Like, my guy's fussy and he likes to be let off the lead and go right deep into the back of a bush and do his business uh, in private. Um, so hopefully some listeners are laughing at that and they're like, oh, my God, my dog's the same. It's like, can't you just poop in the little section that we've given you in the balcony and just get it done? No, um, it's, a whole, uh, it's a whole situation. So would it not therefore be more environmental of me? Now, I live in Potts Point, so this is like literally the dog capital of Australia, and I'd imagine if we all started doing this, yeah, we might come into issues, but... Um, is it more environmental to actually dig it under into the soil uh, than to put it in, especially a landfill bag, and chuck it in the bin? Yeah, it is. Uh, do you still have to pick up your dog poo? We do. Yeah. So, um, like, if it, you if you didn't have rules to respect, what would be the most environmental thing to do with dog poo? I would say, um, yeah, you could just dig it in situ. Mm. There. Yep, and that would be that would be equally as good, I think. Yeah. yeah, but you know there are home compostable doggy bags now. Yes, that's yeah. what we've got. Yeah, yeah. So you know, then um, I don't know what you do with those, but I think typically they would go into landfill. Mm. Yeah, most people just as soon as the dog's pooped, it just still ends up going into the regular bin, which means we've got the same situation as we do with fresh food getting trapped in landfill and causing exactly. methane. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. So as soon as it's going to landfill, then it's contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. And that's obviously what we're, we're trying to reduce. So uh, even with those home compostable bags, those home, home compostable bags are just producing methane in landfill too. Organic matter. Yeah. Okay. I've just had another question around the worm tea. So we're coming back. I know we talked about it earlier, but when like my worms make a ton of it, I, I, we, my husband sawed out the top of a three liter olive oil tin that we kind of have under the tap and we have that tap running that would fill up every couple of weeks. They're busy. Um, so like to dilute that, that would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of liters of water. We don't, we just don't have anywhere to put it all. Is there an environmental consideration when it comes to worm tea? Well, the thing is, what you can do is actually reduce that worm tea. Um, mm, okay. And it's in your interest to do that. Yes, um, please. How yeah. do we do it? So the less tea your worm farm is producing, in fact, the better. You don't mm-hmm. want your worm farm producing that much tea. It's nowhere okay. near as valuable as the castings. Yeah. And as I was explaining before, it's basically, it's it's just like a leachate. So you don't know the contents of it. 
yeah so the value of it is uncertain yeah so what you can do then is to reduce that um that that tea by basically adding more carbon which absorbs that tea into the farm and that moisture is then processed through the worm so you're then getting the the value of the casting rather than the tea um and that moisture is really valuable in your farm but you need to um it needs to be absorbed by the carbon so it sounds to me like you probably could increase the level of carbon in your farm to be absorbed that moisture because food waste is really really um water intensive so um there's there's heaps of water in it and it will just run straight through if it's in excess but you can help harness the value of it by um by absorbing it in your farm with carbon. Yeah, so but more leaves more and leaves more paper. And more toilet rolls and yeah. all of that beautiful stuff that if you can get a hold of, um, if you know, if you don't have enough of it in your own household, shredded paper from the office is a really, really great resource ordinarily going to um, the recycling. Um, so, you know, asking your office if you if they can give up some of that. Yeah, so there's there's ways to access carbon for free and it, it, it's in abundance. We should be able to access it somehow um, for free within within society. So, um, yeah, try and get more of it. And then you can't overdo the amount of carbon you add to your farm either. So don't worry about kind of offsetting that balance. It doesn't oh, that's matter. a great one, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much carbon you've got in there. It's not going to um, affect um, the health of your, of your farm. Fantastic. Um, I've been known to grab the very clean, um, safe-looking carbon at the top of recycling bins if I'm running low myself. <laughs> sort of like, yeah, that looks okay. I'll just put on gloves and and rip that up and chuck it in there. It's oh, it's a free for all. I would it absolutely is. be doing that. Okay, I'm glad that <laughs> doesn't do. sound gross to you. To. Might sound um, gross to people out there, but at least there's two of us, so we're good. also known to. <laughs> take um bananas out of my caddies that people drop off at my house because mm-hmm. you know, they're contained within a skin oh and so yeah. you actually save I it for them. smoothies oh yeah or I cook them I cook them into muffins normally they're you know they're old and brown but you know it's good food it's good it needs to be consumed so yeah I, I take them out yeah humans <laughs> first worm second <laughs> Get the priorities right. They make great muffins. Yeah, they do. And that's so true. If it's in a skin, like there's nothing unhygienic about that, nothing at all. Mm. No, it's good for the taking as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I love it. So I go next level. Yeah, nice. And how do we know whether we need to give some worms away? Because I've got to a point where I'm wondering whether I've got too many worms now, like if they're falling over each other. Um, trying to get the food, I'm thinking, do I need to like let someone know that um, I've got an excess or do I need to add a layer on top? Is is there a problem with that? No, there's absolutely not a problem with that because worms regulate their own population according to the vessel that they're in. So they know how many worms can fit within their vessel and they will populate according to the size. Gosh, they're cleverer than we are as humans, yeah. aren't they? My yeah, goodness. Very smart. Mm. Yeah. So if you see lots of worms in your farm, that just means you have a really healthy, wonderful, thriving farm um, and it will never overpop- overpopulate. Um, adding 
adding an extra layer adds some benefits though. So, you know, if your worm farm is filling up and and you have the capacity for another layer, then go for gold. Put another Yeah, layer. I'm onto four layers now. Oh, wow. And they kind of organize themselves underneath, don't they? I can always just work on the top. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. I just thought while we're here, let me be the guinea pig that stuffs up if I have stuffed up live online. But that's good to know that I'm not doing that. Sometimes there's so many conflicting videos on YouTube and you just think, oh gosh, am I doing the wrong thing? Do I have to feed under as well? But it's always just the top and then they organize themselves. That's exactly right. They organize themselves. And the beautiful thing about that is you're just feeding one tray then and the other trays are then left to percolate and and to process properly. And then you can, you know, you can just set and forget for three months and then come back to it in three months' time. And you've got this beautiful casting that you don't really need to harvest. You can effectively put it straight onto your garden because the worms are up in the top tray feeding off the, mm. the rats. So yeah. And how often do we need to collect the castings from the underneath layers? As little or as often as you want. It's really a a question of how much time you have on your hands. I I've had a really really busy year this year and I can I've probably harvested my castings maybe once this entire year I mean I'm running big units bathtub so you know I've I've got I've got space and I can absorb I can absorb that but you know they will just continue to break it down and unless something is really filling up and you've got no capacity anymore um, then you don't have to harvest and so you can be quite lazy about it and just leave it there and it's it will be fine it will survive while it's still living within that leak ecosystem it will it will continue to live if you take it away from that ecosystem and let it sit it'll start to it'll the the bacteria and um the the microbes will start to die off um you, if you continue having it within its worm farm network it'll it'll continue to live and to thrive so you can just leave it um yeah so it's a time question yeah and people um people are time poor so I, I don't I, I'm reluctant to tell them well you know every three months you've got a you've got to harvest off castings because that makes that makes it high maintenance and people people need it to be low maintenance and it can be and that's the beauty of it yeah and okay so I'm going to challenge the time poor aspect on every three months harvesting castings because like, you know, you're having a chat with your kid after, well, you're, you're not the school age yet, you're in toddler land, but, um, you know, my 13-year-old comes home and quite often if you try to ask them direct questions with them looking at you and you looking at them, it's a bit too intense, especially for boys. But if you're doing something, hey, can you give me a hand with the castings? And then you're chatting about school while you're taking out a couple of cups and then scattering it around your um, your edibles pots. Um, that's then something you're doing together, taking the intensity of focus away from like interview style parent questions and actually connecting and bonding over something intermediary. And I think that is, it's about thinking about time as what can I do at the same time as well sometimes rather than I don't have extra time. Yeah, and I think that that um also winds beautifully into the community aspect of running mm. a hub because you know if you can get some participants for the hub on board, then it becomes an experience of 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 that beautiful chat that happens around the the rim of the compost hub and you know what else can we do and those beautiful conversations occur. So yeah, think, yeah. 
Have you made any like super close friends from running your hub? Well, uh, I uh, I would just say that the street as a whole, um, because effectively it was started out for the street um, and I was new to the street when I started it. I was new to the city as well. So my network was extremely limited. Uh, I was a new mum and um, there was, yeah, like I was in I was in that kind of vulnerable new mum stage of and also in a new city and, you know, not having those connections and networks. And I, I just have to say that starting that hub with respect to my very personal circumstances um, and needing that connection has been amazing. I know everyone on the street now. Um, I, I exercise with some of those, the other mums on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yes. So absolutely yes. I've got friendships on the street that I never imagined would have would have happened in a neighborly way and have never mm. happened before. Uh and yeah, we're it's... all quite different demographics. We've got kids of very different ages, we're at different stages of life, but this thing definitely does connect. Mm. Connect us. Yeah. I I mean, I I can I probably lived in nucleus land, especially during the the severe chronic illness phase, because it's just impossible to think outside of your little unit and just getting through stuff. Um, and uh, just for anyone who's completely new to the podcast here and going, what chronic illness, what happened to her? And you've never heard of low tox life before. And you Googled worm farming and you're here with me and Hannah now just Google. Uh, so you think you've got mold and low-tox life all in one Google bar and, well, Ecosia is my preferred uh, search engine actually, um, but do that and you'll find the post that not only shares my story but has a whole bunch of mould-related resources because um, uh, went to hell and back. There's no really uh, easy way to say that. But once you're um, well, I just urge, well, you know, and, and when you're sick as well, to not feel like you have to do everything alone. I think humans feel like they have to just be completely self-sufficient within their family units, again, because of some strange conditioning um, that's made that the new normal. Um, family is everything. And I, I just, I think about starting a worm farm, doing, you know, running low-tox life, having talks with people in public and, and forming bonds with people in our membership. I think of starting to play tennis again and joining instead of just having private lessons with a coach, which is a more nucleus situation, joining a local comp. And now I've got a whole bunch of tennis mates and we're into the same stuff. And then you find out one of them's got a dog and one of them's got a garden and so I can drop off my castings and Growing community however you see fit means that that interdependentness gets dialed up a bit. And I genuinely believe that is one of the least talk about talked about aspects to a better world, uh, to better mental health outcomes. Uh, and you know, we're getting people to meditate and spend all this time on self-awareness. I think just as powerful is outward awareness and interconnectedness. And it just keeps coming up as a theme for me in my own awareness raising of what a truly happy uh, life where you genuinely feel like you're making a difference to the people around you and to the planet we live on. Uh, and I just think today's conversation just leads me straight back to the importance of that. Yeah. I Beyond carbon and nitrogen, and we can bandy about all those terms, of course. It's important to get all of that right. But what's actually happening mm. is so powerful. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I could have very, very easily have fallen into that quite insular bubble being in the circumstances I was as a new mom and in a new city. And, mm. uh, and you know, uh, and unwittingly, I just, you know, I threw it out there, this compost hub, and it has delivered me this this thing that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have envisaged. I didn't know it was there. And yet, you're exactly right. It is what the important thing in all of this has been actually at the end of the day. It's, it hasn't actually been about the compost. Mm, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then to finish on a super practical uh, note, how much do you reckon you guys as a street are saving from landfill? Well, I know because. Ooh, okay. What's the I figure? Weigh, I weigh everything that comes through. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just something that I've done to kind of, um, you know, as a little bit of a motivator, a little bit of a carrot for the community. Mm. I think people really respond to bit of gamification. Never hurts. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I don't have the figure in front of me, but it's well over five tons now. Um, it's probably about five and a half tons, I would say. Mm, that's huge. Yeah. So yeah. how much does five and a half tons make of methane in a landfill? That'd just be nuts. Maths is not my strength, but no. Now that you put a lot, can you find out? I think that would just be so interesting. Yeah, Uh, because I want the methane conversation to be broadened to food waste. It's yeah. I mean, if food waste was a country, we now know that it would equate to being the third largest polluter in the world behind China and the US. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a really, really great statistic because it's visual and people, it really packs a punch. People can see that. Um, But the other big lesson that I've learned from the compost hub actually is that a lot of what goes into those caddies is food that is edible or at one point was edible. And I think that's a really big lesson that society needs to learn. Like it's not the peels and the cores and the pits and the seeds and all of that kind of thing that's not edible and we're never going to eat. It's stuff that was good for eating and we're throwing it away and we need to reduce that. Composting is fantastic, but even better is Eating. eating yeah it's like we don't want to become the recycling story with our compost I, I don't feel like that anymore I'll just chuck it to the compost no, exactly right yeah. yeah 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 and in actual fact if you're looking at it in technical terms um composting doesn't actually reduce food waste unless an animal or a, uh, an animal or a human consumes the food um, it's still considered waste in terms of our commitments to the sustainable de- development goals so that's a really big um, uh, education campaign for for Australians that um, you know composting is great, but it, it's not um, it's not what we're we're aiming for when it comes to food waste. We've got to eat the food. Yeah, it really should be a story of scraps, not a story of perfectly good yeah. things that we were too lazy to make the most of yeah I've gone on a lot on on a last minute tangent there sorry no uh, like and that is actually quite a big tangent that it is, like yeah. it's worth I've, a whole nother show I've but opened it, up a can of worms oh I love <laughs> it Hannah very nice very nice but you know what I think it actually brings us right back to what we started talking about which was the culture of immediate gratification that we find ourselves in and that is why one of the reasons food waste is blowing up rather than getting better um, and 
there's two things we need to do here. We need to set up systems where we have options to turn that waste into new life, but we also need to waste less, no question. We need to start saying, what do I need to make the most of before we ask ourselves what we fancy? For me, that's one of the most powerful questions we can start bringing into the language. Precisely. That is Mm. exactly it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your awesome composting brain. Uh, I'm so excited we've managed to have you on the show to talk about this because there's more posterity here than disappearing into the Instagram algorithm. Can I ask you, how do you help people? Like, how can we find you? What are the resources? People are curious now. They're thinking, you know what? I might actually make a go of this. How's Hannah going to help? Yeah, well, I I run the an education campaign called The Wormmonger and the best way to kind of track that is through Instagram at The Wormmonger. Uh, and I also do assist quite locally at, at this point in time, but um, community and local government and schools to better um, understand food waste and to be more responsible about what they do with their food. So... You can also contact me via my website, which is or my email address, which is Hannah at thewormmonger.com. And I hope I'm not putting you on the the spot here, but like when the shit hits the fan with my dog and I think I really need to up level my um my uh training here and really put a bit more effort into it so he doesn't run off and and nearly get hit by a car when I'm calling him profusely. I book my dog trainer. Is someone able to book you as a compost trainer? Like if they've got a whole bunch of stuff going on, they just want to have like someone help them through all the things that might be going wrong and troubleshoot it all and get them back on track. Is that something you do? Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. That's something that I do. Yeah. I love it. The compost trainer is here, folks. There's no excuse. Uh, you You can hotline Hannah and she can help you. And I think your Instagram is so informative and helpful. I know how generous you are with answering questions there in your feed. It's it's incredible. Uh, so thank you for the work you do to inspire us all to waste a hectare less of food because we need to. Yes, we absolutely do. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 Euro and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.